with me, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. And I want to begin the reading at verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. Look at what it says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, that is Matthew, got up and followed him, that is Jesus. At first glance, it appears that we know very little about the disciple known as Matthew. But that's only if you take one verse from the scripture that introduces us to him and talks about the fact that he was one of the twelve. But then when you piece together other scriptures that mention this man or someone that we believe was this man, and then as you look more intently at what the scriptures tell us, you discover we know quite a bit. Let me explain. Luke's got Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark's gospel, chapter 2, tells us the story of a call of a man that is almost verbatim to what I've just read for you here in Matthew's gospel, chapter 9. But in Mark's gospel, chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus came across a man whose name was Levi. And he was sitting at the tax collector's booth and Jesus said, follow me. Almost verbatim. The very next gospel, the gospel of Luke, chapter 5, Luke tells us, Jesus came to a man named Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth and said, follow me. And then Luke adds something very interesting. Matter of fact, it was something that was said of another disciple or two that Jesus called. But of this man, Levi, it says that he left everything and followed Jesus. That's important. It'll come back to us in just a moment. But stop for a minute and compare these two verses. Matthew's gospel, he said Jesus came to a man called Matthew, who was a tax collector, and said, follow me. Mark, Luke, tells us that Jesus came to a man named Levi collecting taxes, and said, follow me. Now, for those of you who've been in Sunday school, vacation Bible school for a number of years, you probably know this already. So it's not some startling truth that I'm revealing to you. We believe this is one and the same man. Mark's gospel was written earlier than Matthew. Luke's was written almost simultaneous with Matthew, although some would say a little earlier or later just depends on who you read. What we believe is that this was the same man and that somewhere along the way, Jesus changed his name. So he's not just simply Matthew, and we really don't need to refer to him just as Levi. He's Levi Matthew. We know that Jesus changed the name of Simon, right? From Simon to Cephas, also known as Peter. Simon Peter, we refer to him sometimes. 
The name Levi by itself is a very honorable name. We know that it comes from the Old Testament. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Israel. And the Levitical tribe, you recall, were, they, they were not awarded property when they were given the promised land. They were scattered throughout the entire promised land and were charged with the responsibility of what the priest would do as people would come to the temple or the synagogue to worship. The Levitical priest were the ones who would lead them in their liturgy, reading of the scripture, the prayers, and what we might even refer to as a sermon of sorts. So you think about the fact that this man was named by his parents a good name, but it was also a Jewish name, Levi. Matthew by itself is a good name. By the way, it means literally the gift of God. And if you have the name Theodore or know of someone named Dorothy, their names mean the same as Matthew, gift of God. Is it possible that Jesus initially called Levi to be his disciple? He was a tax collector. He followed Jesus and some are going to call you Matthew. Jesus said of him, like he said of Simon, from this point forward, we're going to call you Matthew. No longer shall you be known as Levi. You are a gift from God. Now, now think about this because, you know, if you're careful, you'll sort of have this idea that Jesus just sort of randomly walked by a tax collector's booth and said, you follow me. You think that's the way it happened? Jesus just sort of walked by down the street, by the way, and he just sort of saw somebody that he'd never met before, never talked to, and said, follow me. Now, that may be exactly the way it happened, but I want you to think about this for just a moment. Who was this guy? Well, the Scripture tells us very plainly, and all three Gospels that introduce us, whether they call him Levi or Matthew, they let us know he was a... Let me get this bitter taste out of my mouth... <clears throat> A tax collector. I don't know of anybody that we're more aversive to than a tax collector other than maybe a tax assessor. And in our country, we get sort of creative and we split those responsibilities. In those days, by the way, they were one and the same. The one who assessed the worth of your property was the one who collected the taxes from you on your property. Do you know how tax collectors were given their responsibilities, and they came to those posts in those days. You see, the, 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 the land was divided up into regions. Some would call it provinces. And all along the way, there would be stations set up where people knew at given times they were to go and pay taxes in that day to the Roman government. And when a post or a station, a tax collector's booth, would become vacant, it'd be put up for bid. And so there was, this notice would go out and say, if you're interested in serving in this role, then you need to communicate with the Roman authorities as to how you're going to operate and how it's going to work. And basically the way it happened is that there was usually a minimum amount of money that would have to be assessed for taxes and the tax collectors knew that they had to bid just a little more and say, not only will you be given that minimum amount, but we'll give you this percent 
over the minimum of what we collect. Now having said that, it went to the highest bidder, but tax collecting in those days was a lucrative business. I mean, they were commonly known as wealthy individuals. I, I, they, they probably lived in the finer homes. They, they, they wore the nicer clothes, uh, rode the newer camels. I don't know. They didn't have automobiles, so we got to figure that one out. But I mean, they were looked upon as individuals who were in the upper class. Now, having said that, all of that was fine unless you were a Jew. Jews did not like the Romans, and that's an understatement, but basically on the point of taxation without representation. We get that. I mean, read the history of America, right? And we know that the Boston Tea Party took place because people said, we don't like the fact that we are being taxed without a say in how those taxes are spent. And this was the feeling of the Jews. They they knew of all the strict enforcements that came from Rome. Rome ruled with a heavy hand for the most part, and the Jews despised it. And so for them to have to go and give money ever so often as we pay our taxes from time to time... They would do it, and they would do so with the utmost resentment and hatred. Now take into for the Romans. Now take into consideration and walk in their sandals for just a moment of what that must have been like for them to be paying a fellow Jew, and they knew that that Jew was in partnership with the enemy. How would that make you feel? How do we feel today? I mean, all I have to do is just utter three little letters and, 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 and I'll probably just strike a nerve in every taxpaying citizen here this morning. I-R-S. You feel better? The Internal Revenue Service. I have a first cousin who married a fella who worked for the Internal Revenue Service For a long time, 25, 30 years, I don't know how long, and then he retired. I cannot meet him when I'm around him. I get a twitch. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I like him. He's a good guy. And the truth be known, the most, I've known another person or two through the years who've worked for the Internal Revenue Service, and, and they are relatively good folks. I, you know, I don't have a problem with them as individuals, but the organization at large, we know that they're, they're the ones who sit and, and just sort of in a condescending sort of way, lord over the Americans, you know, and say, we collect your taxes and we tell you how much you owe and la da 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 da. There's a rub there. There's a problem. There's contention that exists between us and these kinds of individuals. Now, having said that, let's suppose just for a moment, use your imagination, let's be creative. Let's suppose that you and I as two individuals are already disciples with Jesus. We're one of the other 11, I guess. And so we're following along with Jesus at this point. And Jesus... We hear him, we see him go up to this guy at the tax collector's booth and says to him, horror upon horrors, follow me. Lord, can we speak to you for just, come over here. 
And so in my mind, I'm having a conversation with him, and it goes something like this. Lord, you are so much wiser than any of us. We concede that. We know that. But Lord, I, I, I just want to remind you that he, he's not a very likable person. Lord, uh, of all the sinners that exist in our culture, he's at the top of the list. As far as religion goes and spirituality, holiness, righteousness, all of those wonderful things that we know ought to be a part of our lives, Lord, he's at the lowest of the low. Jesus, if you invite him to follow with us, your public rating's going down. I'm just going to tell you, if you're concerned about that at all, see these people who come because they're interested in you multiplying the bread and the fish and feeding them and filling their bellies. They want to know that you will call him and raise their dead, Jesus. But I'm telling you, but if you call him, I'm not sure we have much of a future and that your following is going to grow at all. At that point, I think Jesus would say to you and me, you know, I'm not calling him for who he is. I'm calling him for who he's going to become. At that point, Jesus has the advantage, doesn't he? Because he has the ability to look down into the heart and the life of every individual who's ever lived, is living, or will live. And at that given point in time, he knows who they are. He knows who I am. But he also knows the potential that rests within us. And he extends and he makes his decision. And he extends his invitation based on not who we are at that moment, but at the possibility of what will happen out there in the future. Let me make my point here just for a second if I can. Back in Matthew 9, look at what it says here in verse 10. It says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Now, now watch this. This is Matthew's gospel. The very disciple that I'm talking about this morning, we believe authored all 28 chapters of Matthew's gospel. What we may be reading here in Matthew 9 is the autobiographical account. Matthew may be telling us his own story of how he was called to follow Jesus. And isn't it interesting that immediately after Jesus called him, Jesus is reclining in a house. Most people commonly believe this is Matthew's home. Remember Zacchaeus, the small-statured guy, vertically challenged? What do we say? He was short, right? And he climbs up in a tree because he wants to see Jesus. As Jesus is coming by, Jesus walks by. Everybody else is ignoring him. Why? He's the tax collector. Not just a, he's a thief. He's robbed people blind. And Jesus associates with him and says, Zacchaeus, come on down out of that tree. I'm going to your house today. We're going to have lunch. Not only are you going to feed me, you're going to feed my disciples and all. Remember what happened when Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus? Everybody looked down on him and said, why is Jesus doing this? Doesn't he know who he is? Look at what it says here about Matthew. As he's reclining in the house, many tax collectors, oh, and sinners. 
one and the same in the mind of a Jew, came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Evidently, well, I mean, you got to give it credit here for what it is. It says, and tax collectors, plural. Matthew sends a, sends a, sends a collector, we assume, and says, down the road here and find my buddy John. Another tax collector, we assume, and says, come on to my house. We're going to eat with the rabbi. We're going to eat with the teacher today. The preacher. But in Matthew's gospel, it says, tax collectors, plural, and sinners. And they're so critical of him. How is it that Jesus sees the good when everybody else sees the bad? When everybody else has relegated this guy to a social outcast, an Orthodox Jew, a Pharisee, a rabbi even, a scribe, somebody who's associated with the temple, if they're coming down the street and they see a tax collector coming, usually there was somebody who was coming in front of them saying, tax collector, tax collector, tax collector. So they're whispering, so the Jew and the rabbi and the scribe, they can walk over to the side of the road. They want to walk, and they don't want to have any association, don't want to touch, because, because you know, they'll be contaminated. They'll be considered Filthy. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they'd go back to the temple and not be able to perform their duties. They would have to go through all of these rituals and these descriptions of cleansing themselves before they could go back to performing their religious task. All because their sleeve touched the garment of a tax collector. Let me, let me tell you what, what it may have been like. It may have been like that, you know, Jesus' popularity was growing and his he began to stand and teach and preach and share and, and love. People were coming. And I wonder if Jesus is standing to teach. And he's talking for a little while. And all of a sudden he looks back there and he's near anybody. He's just sold it and he's dressed real nice. But he's not near anybody. He's just sort of off to him side. And Jesus makes a note of it, but continues to teach. The next time he's standing and teaching, and there's that same guy, but this time his arms are not folded, and he's not standing, he's sitting, and he's taking notes. His demeanor has changed. The Bible says that Nicodemus met with Jesus at night, remember? Nicodemus was told by Jesus what it was going to take for him to be born again. Well, I wonder if Jesus met with Levi in private, at a public view where nobody else would see it, where nobody else would be critical of it. If, if Jesus is having a conversation with Levi and there is a sense in which Levi expresses a sincere Interest in what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, we know, commonly talked about forgiving your enemies and loving them and praying for them. Jesus talked about all kinds of things. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God 
what is God's. And I wonder if that wasn't resonating with Levi at some point. And when Jesus sensed that Levi was close to accepting him for who he was, Jesus went to him maybe in public, even at the tax collector's booth, and said, follow me. And as Luke would say it, he folded up his tables, left everything, and followed Jesus. Let me tell you something, folks. I have seen it over and over and over again in church, especially in those churches where I get to preach over a length of time. Sometimes in revivals, it's, yeah, I can see it and I can point it out. And I always come back to this story because what happens is that I'm preaching and, and you're listening or napping, whatever, just, you know, the day may be, whatever, you know, your, your, your energy level is like at that given moment. But don't be a person who's in the room that I'm not able to measure the engagement of every person who's in the room. And sometimes there's somebody who initially is uninterested. And you can tell by their facial expression, by the way they're sitting, by the way their demeanor and so forth. But over time, something happens. God's Spirit begins to work in their heart and in their life. And all of a sudden on a given Sunday that I think this sermon is for anybody but nobody, and I don't have any idea how God is going to use it, their heart is softened, and all of a sudden they come to a point in a realization that they themselves need to give themselves over to God. Maybe it's for the first time to become a Christian. Maybe it's another time. They've been a Christian for a while. But it's they need to renew that relationship with Him because they find themselves distanced from Him. You know what this is like? Life is like we're on an island. An island. And it's just us on the island. And the Holy Spirit is out there on a ship. And the ship is circling that island, circling that island, circling that island. And all of a sudden when it finds that open port, it docks. The people on the ship can come on the island. The people on the island can come on the ship. There is open communication. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. See, we come to church every single Sunday and we're here pretty regular. And so many times we leave and say, well, check, we, you know, we were at church today. It was okay. It was all right. Maybe it was good even that. that and, and we wonder, what, what's God doing? What's up? But totally unaware to any single one of us is that one individual God is just driving home a message over and over and over and over again until finally it comes to fruition and God's Spirit has free reign in the life and the heart of that individual. We're so good at doing that, but then taking it back bit by bit and piece by piece. We're so good at reclaiming ownership to certain parts of our lives and God keeps dealing with us and says, if, if you really want to be who I want you to be, i got to have it all. What does that mean? you got to give him everything. It's an acknowledgement that he's Lord, that he's master, that, 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 that your family is not your own. Your family belongs to the Lord. You can't manipulate them. You can't boss them. You can't own them. I hear children say, would you say that again? <laughs> no, no, no. What it means is, you see, we can't always dictate 
the decisions that our children make. All we can do is invest in them and pray with them and love them and let them know that there are going to be times out there in their lives where they will be confronted with opportunities to make the right decision or the wrong decision and we pray they make the right decision. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we want. But we can't make every decision for them, especially as they get older. That career that you think you have, that's yours, that you think that you possess, that you claim ownership of it to some degree, to whatever, and you think it's all yours. No, it's not yours. It's God's. I know of a man right now who came to me and he said to me, he said, Bill, I think God's calling me to preach. And it was obvious to me that God was doing that, but I kidded with him a little bit and I said, well, that's not happening. He said, oh, what do you mean? I said, you, you graduated from Mississippi State with a degree in ag. God's not calling you to preach. That was a joke. It really happened, but it was a joke. We laughed. He and his wife, and the truth of the matter is, he'd been in his own business for about 10 years. He and his wife and two children had just built a new home. They'd been in their new home, beautiful new home, less than five years. The business was growing. He had a couple of partners. They were adding. They had probably 30, 40 employees that were working for him. And he came to me and he said, I, I'm going to sell out. I'm, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to take my family. I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to go. I'm going to get trained. I want to be a pastor and so forth and so on. And I said, Do you, have you talked to Jenny about this? That was his wife. Oh, wonder if Matthew had a wife. <laughs> Follow me. Uh, first, I need to talk to the Mrs. Levi. Can I do that? wonder what she said. All the fur coats, all the shoes, all the new camels in the garage. <laughs> You're going to what? We giving up all of that to follow a teacher? Yep. It's all about surrender. It's all about letting Jesus make every decision in your life. Now what happens, ladies and gentlemen, is we think, oh, I've I become so poor. I, yeah, no, 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 no. Even your bank account, you, you acknowledge this money is in my name, but it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. And so when you make a payment, when you, when you make a purchase, it's all about letting God be a part of that decision and a part of that process. And as God gives back to you, you discover that your faith is beginning to increase that your excitement, that your, your joy, your enthusiasm for a walk with Him and everything about life has a touch of spirituality to it. And so whatever you do, you want to do it with an understanding that my life belongs to Him. And you begin to pay attention to the details. You see, what we have in Matthew's Gospel, folks, is unique. And it is special. And you don't find Matthew's gospel, a lot of what we see here in any other place in the Bible. For instance, Matthew chapter 2, he tells, the gospel writer tells us about who came to visit Jesus not long after he was born. No other gospel writer tells us about the visit from the people from, from the east. 
that came. Matthew does that. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 contain for us unending script of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a little hint of it in Luke's Gospel, but it's a much shorter, briefer, annotated version. Matthew gives us the whole bit. Maybe that's Matthew taking notes there. So what do you think a tax accountant, tax collector had to take notes? I believe they did. I believe they had to pay attention to all the detail. And they were accustomed to taxing every little piece of property that a person had in their own name. And I think Matthew was paying attention to the details there. Run to the end of the, end of the gospel, chapter 28. You don't find a more exhaustive, detailed explanation of the resurrection of Jesus other than in Matthew's gospel as he tells us of how Jesus was raised from the dead and they went to visit the tomb. And then you follow him through all the days of him appearing to those people where Jesus said now go again and you come to the end and Matthew records for us a great commission where Jesus said now go into all the world and make disciples baptize them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit thank you Lord for Matthew right now we understand he's become a gift from God to us Never, ever, ever underestimate God's willingness and God's desire to take your life where you are and move you forward progressively because every single one of us have potential in His sight.